With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball with uh, all of us. My name is Tyler Mon, Samuel Dykstra. And Benjamin Hill are in New York City. Sam, I left out your middle initial. Are you happy? Hi, everyone. How are you? Well, we should say that it was your birthday on Monday, Tyler. It so was. happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. And I was being attacked for my middle name. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? It's Tyler's birthday. I'm going to take the high road. And I'm going to send out a tweet saying, like, you know, it's great to work with your friends. And it's great to have <laughs> friends like Tyler. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just, I'm going to set the bar at nice here. It is true. He is, he is the nicest guy. I was wondering if there were going to be lingering after effects of that. So I guess that's what I get this week. Your your own birthday present to me is right, by just exactly. saying my name. It's just by saying as your my name. parents gave it to me. Samuel Collins Dykstra. Thank you. The Collins has a silent P at the beginning. Benjamin Hill is with us as well. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Sam. Yeah, ben, that's Benjamin Gregory Hill. To Gregory, you. I was just going to ask you. Yeah, Benjamin G Hill. We have Sam P and Ben G. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So Wander Franco's middle name is Samuel, and Sam tweeted out uh, a comment about how Wander Franco has a great middle name. And so then I responded and said, Wander Samuel Prospectus Dykstra Franco. And, uh, and then we had people who were jumping in on the fun. It's fantastic. It's so weird when it's like that scene in, uh, in that thing you do when the guy come up and comes up at the bar and asks when they're releasing a record. And, uh, and Lenny uh, turns to the rest of the band and goes, hey, wasn't that our fan? That's, what, that's how I always feel. People interact with us with our own inside jokes. Like, oh, people listen to this show. It's amazing. Yeah, and uh, then I feel bad because I carry on the bit of me being very angry about it. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And I was like, no, you're not. It's, he's it's not actually angry. Yeah. Although I did think the other day, like, should I text Sam and see if he gets mad when I call him Samuel Prospectus Dykstra? I mean, to be very clear, I do get angry. <laughs> Make no bones about that. I do get angry. But, you know. I, I appreciate podcast bits, so I, I will take one for the time. <laughs> oh, man. That is fantastic. Well, we've got a lot to get to on this week's episodes of the show before the show. Uh, you may have noticed in your podcast feed that there is not one but two episodes of uh, the show this week. We, uh, we set a bar when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was called up to the major leagues, and we want to continue hitting that bar with the uh, promotion of the top prospect in baseball, Wander Franco. The phenom has arrived in the big leagues. We were recording this on Wednesday, the 23rd. Last night, he uh, belted uh, a three-run game-tying homer for his first major league hit. Uh, the video of his dad beaming with pride went around the, the internet today. Uh, very cool start to the major league career of Wander Franco, um, especially with the ground level video in which you could hear somebody yelling overrated at Wander Franco the moment that the pitch was delivered that he annihilated for a three run homer. And that was pretty sweet. Um, but we do have a special uh, emergency Wander Franco podcast, which you can listen to right now if you are uh, into the Wander Franco news. Uh, but otherwise, we're going to dive into our regularly scheduled edition of the show before the show. And we are joined, uh, of course, by our good buddy, Ben Hill, who has a great story that is up on the site. And we're going to talk about this one first uh, as we get started with Ben. 
there was a game played uh, last week between the low A Jupiter Hammerheads and the visiting St. Lucie Mets in which maybe the weirdest foul ball in, uh, in baseball history, certainly in recent memory, uh, was swatted off the bat of Cameron Barstad. Uh, and Ben, I just want to let you take it away and tell us the story because it's terrific. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. I mean, uh, listeners of this podcast and readers of my work, of which there are several, uh, are aware that, you know, I love to focus on the weird things that happen at minor league ballparks, the things you can't plan for, uh, the quirky, the strange, the completely improbable. So let me set the scene. It's uh, Roger Dean's Chevrolet Stadium, home of the Jupiter Hammerheads. As Tyler said, they're playing the St. Lucie Mets. There's one out in the bottom of the fourth inning, score tied at 1-1. Runner on second base, Cameron Barstad at the plate. Oscar Rojas pitching for the St. Lucie Mets. The count is now 1-0, and the next pitch, Cameron Barstad fouls off the ball. Seconds later, sirens are blaring and the ballpark is being evacuated. And, you know, if you're at a minor league game and a fire alarm goes off and the stadium is being evacuated and no one knows why, that's a kind of harrowing moment. Uh, you know, what's going on here? We got to get out of here. So it's a kind of chaotic scene. And no one knows why the fire alarm's going off in the middle in the fourth inning of this low A baseball game. And uh, it didn't take long to determine, however, that the fire alarm went off because Cameron Barstad hit a foul ball. He's a catcher, but he bats lefty. Hit a foul ball over the third base side into the concourse, and it smashed a fire alarm mounted on a concourse wall and hit it at exactly the right angle to pull down the lever and, and trigger the alarm. So this yeah, game... it's not like this was just like it had a smack a button. Like, it wasn't something easy like that. I mean, easy, quote-unquote, like that. Like, this was not... This is mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the fire alarm, it's the, if you envision a fire alarm in your mind, it's that fire alarm. The one in schools or hotel hallways or whatever. The little red box with the pull-down lever. Uh, so they had one of those mounted on the concourse wall. And the foul ball hit it just perfectly to you know one break the alarm but two to trigger it and uh just a crazy moment so when i uh got tagged in a tweet over the weekend where someone was like hey you see this i was like no i did not thank you and then i reached out to uh the hammerhead spoke with their gm jamie tool yesterday and i just love these kind of stories you know he just kind of told me a little bit more about you know how it went down on his end how you know if you work in minor league baseball you know you're just on your walkie-talkie on the radio all game long, talking to staff members, making sure everything's going smoothly. So there he is in the press box talking on the walkie-talkie about a busted toilet. Then the fire alarm goes off, and it's just like, what is going on? Um, I just love those kind of moments. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to get Cam Barstad on the record, but uh, he, he retweeted the story and seems to like it. Uh, I wish I'd gotten a couple quotes from him. I was unable to get in touch with him yesterday when I wrote the story. Uh, but, uh, you know, he'll always have a claim to fame uh, here in the early stages of his career. You know, he's just 20 years old, though, eh? as the guy who set off a fire alarm at a minor league baseball game with a foul ball. And, uh, you know, at the end of the story, I quote Jamie Toole saying, you know, in typical minor league fashion, you know, we have to do something now. So I am hoping and looking forward to uh, some sort of Cam Barstad fire alarm giveaway item, baseball card, something that kind of immortalizes this uh, crazy moment. Yeah, maybe turn one of the uh, concession stands into a chili stand, something like that, fire alarm, chili. Uh, I don't know. That that's For some reason, that's what popped into my head. I know chili is not really a ballpark food, but that's where my mind went. Uh, one, one thing we should Cam point Barstad, out about this. Cam Barstad's uh, five-alarm chili. Yeah, there we go. 
Uh, one thing we should point out about this story too is that Roger Dean Chevrolet Chevrolet Stadium, they're not open the entire week to fans, right? Like this yeah, happened to be. Yeah, but, they they are they were open on this game, and I'm I should have asked that. I'm not sure they started off the season. It's a very strange scenario. This is a facility that hosts, you know, two spring training teams, uh, major league teams, obviously, uh, in terms of the Marlins and the Cardinals, and then both their low A affiliates play at the ballpark, sharing a ballpark, which is why there's always an odd number of minor league stadiums, even though there's an even number of teams, because the Palm Beach Cardinals and Jupiter Hammerheads share Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium. Uh, but there were fans in the ballpark on Saturday night. And, uh, you know, Jamie Toole said, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the erstwhile Florida State League, it's never been known for drawing a ton. But he said they're doing pretty well by the context of the league. And, you know, they had a good walk-up crowd that night. And uh, he said some of the fans didn't come back, even though it was a short delay. You know, once you have to leave the ballpark because the fire alarm's going off, I think some people are like, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll hit you up next time, guys. But for the most part, you know, it was so short that the game resumed, you know, without without much of a thought. And uh, and Cam Barstad hit a 442-foot home run the next night. And uh, you have to attribute that to some sort of post-fire alarm foul ball energy. Yeah, there's got there's got to be some uh, adrenaline going on, I would imagine. That probably lasts for 24 hours or so. Uh, ben, let's pivot real quick to a, a series of stories that you're going to be having come out on MLB.com in the weeks, months, years potentially ahead uh it's ballpark guides which obviously you have great experience uh writing these for milb.com your blogs other things in the past um but this is kind of bringing the ballparks that we know and love across minor league baseball to a bigger audience uh and you started here with the amarillo sod poodles who play at hodgetown and i need everybody at home to when they visualize hodgetown know that it is in all caps um that is a big stylized thing why they do that, I'm not entirely sure, but it, I love it every time because it feels like somebody's yelling the name of a ballpark at me. Uh, but what can you tell us about Amarillo's Hodgetown and uh, what this series is going to be like as you expand it? Right. I think uh, the latter part of your question is, uh, for me, the most important right now in that uh, this is a new thing for me in terms of embarking on a big long-term project, the Minor League Ballpark Guide, um, which will include comprehensive write-ups uh, for MLB.com uh, of every single minor league ballpark. So, you know, it's going to take months and months and months and months to do. Uh, I hope to have some contributors work with me so I don't have to do everyone myself. It, a lot of it draws on the material I have from having visited, um, you know, 177 different ballparks over the last decade. Uh, so it's a way to kind of uh, put together my material for a new audience. You know, a lot of that's scattered around milb.com articles, old Ben's biz blog posts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's a good, good way to put it all together in a new format. I mean, I think these articles look great, just utilizing a new uh, article template, um, you know, really uh, pop visually. And uh, the big picture plan as these continue to come out is they will all be organized into one distinct spot with a ticketing map. Uh, so you can actually plan road trips around, you know, uh, you know, these write-ups, or if you're planning a road trip, you can click on every team to get all the information within it. So it's an overview of every single minor league ballpark. And yes, the first one is uh, the Amarillo Sod Poodles. Uh, uh, Hodgetown opened in 2019. And, uh, you know, so this sets the template and a lot of the other articles will be similar to this, explaining a little bit about the background and history of the team and the ballpark. But the main thing is just saying, what kind of ballpark is this? What are the features? Who's the mascot? Uh, what are the concession items? And then beyond that, what can you do in the area? What can you go get to eat? 
uh, what are other teams, you know, nearby or in the case of the Amarillo Sod Poodles comparatively nearby because it's Texas and nothing is close to anything else. Um, and so it's a lot of work, but I hope this will be, you know, as it comes together, a great resource for people, uh, the minor league ballpark guide. And as it comes together, you know, this is still in the works, but I want to solicit feedback. And I think as I, in the future, as I start to write these articles, um, you know, I want to get discussions, particularly on Twitter going of, hey, I'm going to be writing about this ballpark. What are your favorite things about it? Or, you know, what, are, what is your favorite restaurant in this city? And, you know, be able to solicit uh, feedback from people uh, in these articles. Because while I do consider myself an expert in this realm, how much of an expert can you be if you've only spent a night or two nights at a certain location? You know, I, I want to make sure uh, in a lot of cases that it has uh, some local input as well, because locals are going to know, you know, exponentially more about me or anyone else uh, about places to visit in the city. And, you know, I like to get off the beaten path, you know, throw in a record store reference or, you know, more hole in the wall uh, dining options and, you know, keep it quirky and keep it irreverent and keep it fun. And uh, yeah, so here we go. Amarillo South Pool is up now. I think they'll start running about once a week in the future. Hopefully they'll ramp up more than that uh, in the off season and uh, we'll see what happens. That is fantastic stuff and uh, is really going to be a pretty transformative series of stories that are up on uh, MLB.com and on uh, on Major League Parent Club sites as well. And uh, with that, we will pivot to our interview segment this week. I have to uh, preface the interview segment by saying that I jumped into the interview late. Uh, and I know Ben gave the introduction and said that it was him and Sam because it was him and Sam along with our guest this week, Jesse goldberg Strassler from the Lansing Lugnuts. And then I just like pirated, ninjaed my way into this segment. Uh, so you'll hear my voice just pop up randomly. But uh, Ben, give us the, the preview of this interview. This is one of my favorite ones that we've done recently. Yeah, I mean, you said it, Tyler. Uh, you will appear uncredited in this interview. It's uh, like a secret cameo. And uh, you added a lot to the interview because this interview is about the art of broadcasting and what a long road it is to be a truly accomplished professional sports broadcaster. So we're talking to Jesse Goldberg Strassler about his initiative, Demo Critique Day, uh, hashtag Demo Critique Day on Twitter, which I believe was Monday, June 21st, an annual endeavor uh, dedicated to uh, broadcasters being able to network with one another and um, share their demo reels, their demo tapes and get feedback. And uh, Jesse... Well, you'll hear from Jesse. He's a great guy, one of the most unique and beloved broadcasters in minor league baseball, and he has a lot to say about the topic. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Here on the show before the show podcast, Sam Dykstra and myself, Ben Hill, are delighted to be joined by 
Jesse Goldberg Strassler, the longtime broadcaster for the Lansing Lugnuts, who are now a Oakland Athletics High A affiliate in the High A Central League. I believe I got that right. It's been a, uh, a lot of changes here in the minor leagues, and we could talk about that forever, but we're not here to talk about that, nor are we here to talk forever. We're here to talk about to Jesse about an initiative he started and that really took place, uh, we we're speaking here on Tuesday, June 22nd, one day before was a, a holiday of sorts, not a holiday, a, uh, a day of work and connection in the broadcasting world, Demo Critique Day. And that is an opportunity for broadcasters all over sports to share their demos, get critique from other broadcasters, and uh, hone their trade, network, and uh, just improve their games. And it's an interesting concept. And Jesse, thank you for being here. And tell us about Demo Critique Day and uh, how it came about. Well, thank you for having me. There was a group Zoom hosted by Lisa Pride for One Baseball Mike. And she was asking, what can we do to broaden the opportunities? What can we do to amplify voices? Because here's the difficulty is, because we're on the inside, um, if you're a broadcaster who actually has a job broadcasting for a team, there, I'm not gonna say it presents that much power, but it does allow us to say, since we're behind the curtain, what can we do to draw the curtain back? What can we do to help people stick their foot in the door? Or at the very least, prop the door open, grab a doorstop for somebody. And it just came to me that one of the best things that we can do is start to just try to reach out and connect people, people that I don't know who they are, people that um, I might never meet in person. But if we simply declare a day to say, put your demo out there and we'll retweet it, put your demo out there and we'll try to bring it to the attention of people that we know and we can connect you with, um, maybe we can bring voices to ears that they would not otherwise reach. And I put this idea out there that there would just be a day that would be a demo day for employers, for job deciders, for anybody who would have any kind of influence to, to try to discover people that they would not otherwise discover. And I put it out there as a poll saying, what would be the best month for this? Well, Mike Farron, the Arizona Diamondbacks said, you shouldn't do a demo day where you just amplify all these voices. You should do a critique day first because before people get their demos ready to be hired, they need to have proper guidance. They need to have things to work on during the baseball season first. That's something that we're all striving. All right, it's the season and we're going game in, game out, looking for any kind of direction. And that's what a critique brings from someone who's a little bit more ensconced from someone who is a little bit more experienced, something that they have learned from all of their games, all of their reps, that they can then lend someone. And it might be advice that they've never even thought of before. So for Mike saying we should have a critique day, that's where yesterday came about. And I talked to Adam Giardino of the Black Play-by-Play -play Fund just about when would be a good day, when, I'm not, uh, when am I not stepping on any toes, and it's entirely grassroots. I just threw that out there into the void saying, here's the hashtag. Let's see if anyone is able to see this and take advantage of it. Let's try this. Um, so my thinking is if we got one person, two people heard by somebody who would not otherwise hear them, 
that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's that's obviously huge. And that's how the ball got rolling here. Now that we are a day after this, what was the response? Like, I don't think people out there know just how many, uh, you know, sports broadcasters are out there searching for work, searching for critique, trying to get better uh, with with these demo reels. So what was the response? And, you know, when did you start to see this really pick up momentum? I think we barely scratched the surface too. I think that this is something that can build momentum and reach more people, just judging by all of the broadcasters that I would see at the winter meetings each year. I think this is a really difficult time for broadcasting as an industry because there aren't too many opportunities and there are tons of people getting bottlenecked. All of those sports broadcasters in college, all of those broadcasters coming out of college, all of those broadcasters who had positions and lost their positions over the course of the pandemic era, um, there's a lot of people who would like to broadcast games who are just trying to find any kind of lifeline. So I think the reaction was good, just continuing to see demos pop up throughout the day and people continuing to spread the word. And Mark Simon checking in to say, hey, I'm going to listen to some of these, let me give some critiques. Alex Cohen from the Iowa Cubs contacting me privately and saying, I've done three, four critiques so far and let's keep this going. I think that I do not truly understand the extent to which people were reached, but to the extent that I understand it, I think that it went over very well. Jesse, what's the feedback that you get from young broadcasters? I know one of the one of the tough things, um, you know, in any industry, but I think especially as a, a broadcaster and a young broadcaster is learning, here's what I need to do better, because I think we all uh, are a little bit private about our own styles and about our own crutches and all of that. And it takes some learning um, to realize that, you know, when people give you a critique, they're trying to help you get better and all of that. It's not a, it's not a shot at you or anything like that. What have you learned from, you know, young broadcasters who go through this and how they appreciate the things that they do learn from it. When you say more private, what do you mean? I think in a, in a context of this is my style, it's, it's kind of an intimate thing, you know, I mean, being a, a broadcaster and being somebody who's a, a voice that's out there conveying something to people, um, your own style is sort of like your own personality. And I think there are certain people who think if uh, a critique is there, it's, uh, you know, a criticism of the way that they do things. And so for, for certain broadcasters, I think that level of intimacy in sharing their own performance, their own style, um, sometimes that gets a little, um, I don't know what exactly the word is, but you almost feel kind of like, well, if I'm putting this out there and people are telling me, well, here's something that you can tweak and do better, maybe that feels like something that uh, that is almost an attack or something like that. Like when you're young, it's difficult to learn that it's not that way. Um, you know what I mean? I think when you're old, it's difficult to learn that it's yeah, not that way. Yeah, that's fair. I think that what I struggle with, but what I think is true is that both of these things have to be true. You have to believe that you are already good enough to do it. You have to believe that you can get better. And if you have only one of those, if you believe I'm good enough to do it, but you don't believe that you can get better, if you believe that you have to get better, but you don't believe that you're good enough to do it, you will struggle. And I think that you can find that spectrum of the people who are really fragile with it, who doubt themselves. And that's the camp that I come from, where I remember how poor I was broadcasting in college. And I still doubt myself and I still listen to others and go, 
I wish I could be better, I'm not good enough yet. And then there are those broadcasters who, when you try to say you could do this to get yourself to the next level, you could do that to get yourself to the next level. Well, they already believe that they are at that next level. So it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, fine line to walk. Uh, I think about the Gordon Corman book, Son of Interflux, where there's a main character who's a painter studying in school and he brings his painting up for the critique and the teacher gives him 45 minutes worth of criticisms. So what does he do? He tears the painting down and he tries an entirely new painting. And at the end of the book, they're going, if you just worked with that painting that you did and you work to improve the things that you work on, you could be a master. But when you start anew, here come 45 more minutes of criticisms your way. Um, I think that the understanding of how to give critique and the understanding of how to receive critique are both difficult learned skills. I do not think that it's innate to understand how to accept criticism, positive, negative, constructive. I do not think that it's innate to know how to give it. But I do think for every broadcaster, wherever they are, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's people at the topmost for whichever network or any single team, that they have had somebody and probably multiple plural somebodies give them guidance along the way that really, really helped. And that's what this is the aim for, is just to say, here's a direction, here's a guidance. And it's not just give the score every minute, give the score every two minutes. It's something very specific that if you just add this in, it's Boog Shambi saying, get ahead of every single pitch or add a little thing in when you describe something. It might be a broadcaster saying, hey, give this, uh, give this story, add something to this inning. <clears throat> I really enjoy the Dan Schulman, even though he doesn't realize that he does this, each half inning, it focuses on the second batter of the half inning. And the first battery calls normal, and the third battery calls normal, and the second batter, there's a story there that's going to carry him through that half inning. Each of us, in trying to learn our craft, comes at it individually, but we can each learn something that we then introduce someone else to that helps them. So yeah, I think that that's difficult for the young broadcaster to understand how to, how to hear something and use it so that it works for you. But I also think that we are presented with new pieces of knowledge all the time that here, this is new. This is a new social media platform. This is a new website kind of mechanism that how can you get it to work for you? So I'm sorry that was such a long answer to a question. I love the idea though of connecting people to people who have an element of wisdom that could then uplift someone and push them further into a really good direction. What I think is uh, is great, and please don't apologize for long answers because that's what we love, and uh, and that was a great one. Um, this, you know, you and I could have. I think this is actually the first time that you and I are speaking, certainly over Zoom, obviously. But I think it's like the first time that we're actually speaking. But I feel like we've known each other for, uh, you know, I got into the minors in '09. I feel like we've basically known each other since all that time, um, and we could do, you know, a, a series of shows just about this and these weird intricacies and things like that. I think because when you get into the the nuts and bolts and kind of the granular elements of broadcasting styles. There are those little things like you talked about. And I love that you mentioned Alex Cohen. I remember, you know, one of my last great uh, memories before the pandemic doing games in Tokyo. Um, Alex was uh, part of our crew for um, the WBSC Premier 12. And I remember we had a night um, in our hotel 
we're in this bar that overlooks the Tokyo Dome and it's me and Alex Cohen and Andrew Reynolds, who used to be uh, with the Northwest Arkansas Naturals and, uh, and Ryan Roland Smith, who's a, a color analyst for the Seattle Mariners and a former major leaguer. And we were talking about just all the different things, different influences, different things you love that other broadcasters do. Um, and I remember, you know, pointing out with Alex, I love uh, when Alex describes an outfielder is taking the measure of a fly ball to make a catch. I love that. Um, and yeah, you notice certain little things, you know, like with uh, Dan Schulman and the second batter of an inning and all of that. When you're talking to young broadcasters, one of the things that I feel like I constantly tell people, and I know it's what people told me, is you have to find your own voice. I mean, I remember listening to a, a demo of a, a guy who sent me his stuff about a year ago, and I said I, I liked it. I thought he was very – it was a sports talk demo, not a play-by-play -play demo. Um, thought he was really talented, but I thought he was trying very hard to be Jim Rome. And he messaged me back and said, yeah, it's exactly what I am trying to do, and I think it's great that you noticed that because the thing that I struggle most with is – how do I be myself and not try to be a caricature or uh, an impersonator of somebody else? What do you find, especially on the play-by-play -play side, for people who are trying to get in the minor leagues who might be listening to this, what's the piece of advice that you give most often to people um, or the thing that you stumble across most when you listen to demos? Well, first, I think somebody doing an impression and impersonation of somebody else, I think that's the way that you have to start. I've yeah, got definitely. a year and a half year old right now. How is he getting language? How does he say words? Because he's getting it right from hearing me and hearing my wife. So if you're speaking the language of a baseball broadcaster, you can only learn that language from a baseball broadcaster. Al Michaels did Vin Scully when he was coming up as a young baseball broadcaster, because that was the language that he heard. So that's the language that he can share. That's the only language that he knows how to share. And so there is this, it's such a peculiar question to say broadcast voice. Um, I'll have people say, oh, is this your broadcast voice? Well, yes, you cannot, you cannot talk on air the way that you do in person. It doesn't work because in person um, I can gesture, I can have facial mannerisms. Sam can interrupt me at any point, which he can't if he's listening to me broadcast. So I can be much more monotone. Uh, I can say, ah, uh, I can struggle for different words. And in broadcasting, all of that changes and you are now punching words and you're going low and you're going high and you're speeding up and you're slowing down. All of that has to be learned and practiced. So what I tell broadcasters is this, like Stephen Curry shoots that three-pointer in the corner a million times to practice it and get the muscle memory right, you have to get muscle memory right for your words. You have to understand the pauses. You have to understand the timing. You have to have the words as tools at your disposal, which was led to the creation of the baseball thesaurus because I didn't have the right words as tools. If you are searching for what is the proper word in the proper moment, it's really difficult. So what you need to do is actually have it there ahead of time and put it at the front of your tongue, whether you've written it down on a sheet of paper in front of yourself, whether you've practiced it so much, so that way you've got those words available. And then that leads into, okay, the game's going on and here we go. And that's why Vin Scully can be poetic because he's reading poetry in his normal life. So it's already there on the front of his tongue. That's why Joe Buck knows what to do with his voice. Or I think Joe Davis is a master of vocally using because the dude understands his voice. So when the moment comes, he's practiced it and it becomes vocal muscle memory. 
So that's what I tell young broadcasters is I say, call me a ground out to third right now. Call me a fly out to left field right now. And if you understand the mechanics of it, you understand the mechanics of what makes a home run call, then you'll know what to do and you won't even have to think when the moment shows back up. Jesse, you're obviously passionate about the art of broadcasting, passionate about helping others. Um, I'm curious to kind of throw it not back on you a little bit, but in your own career, you've now been a minor league broadcaster for 12 years, I believe. This is your 13th season, something like that. Um, you've certainly gotten a lot of feedback along the way. How has, uh, what are some of the most important critiques you have gotten or the most helpful advice you have gotten to, uh, to hone your own craft? <laughs> oh man, that would make a very long list. I've been broadcasting. I joined in 2005 was my first season in pro ball, but I was a pregame postgame show host with the Brockton rocks. So Oh six with the Montgomery biscuits was my first year in minor league ball. And uh, one of the first things that I was told was don't up speak, that I would end every single thing that I would say up speaking. I came at broadcasting from Shakespearean theater. So I was working in Montgomery, Alabama, and I was told drop my G's. I was enunciating too clearly, but crying out loud, this is not the stage. The people in Alabama don't need to hear somebody walking. Uh, <laughs> So very much, I was told, slur my language. And now recently I got a critique. I think that you need to enunciate better. Uh, I was told, don't talk in complete sentences. That when you call the action, everything should be broken up. Grounded a third, bounce to third, backhand. Johnson plants, throws, one down. If you can break things up, that puts you right where you want to be. Jerry Howard, the former voice of the Blue Jays, called it lag, that if you could lag behind a play and then use those short phrases, you could catch yourself up because lagging allowed your brain to process what you're seeing. If you're not giving your brain time to process, that's when you run into trouble. That's when you start to call things that didn't happen. A ground ball that a guy grabs, except that it went through his legs, or you just might get something wrong. You might get stuck because you haven't lagged enough behind it to allow the brain to process. And then from Joe Block with the Pittsburgh Pirates, he said that you just have to take things up a notch. And that is with the highlight reel play, that the highlight reel play must sound special and that you must crush that like a home run or to put a pitcher's metaphor on it. When it comes time for you to throw 100 miles an hour, throw 100 miles an hour that your fastball on that highlight call should not be 88. Now you need to command it. You can't lose your command of that 100 mile an hour fastball, but you better hammer that highlight call because that's what everybody really wants to hear in the end. Well, Jesse, um, really appreciate you sharing your expertise, your passion for the art of broadcasting. Uh, I know minor league fans and Lansing and all over have enjoyed interacting with you on Twitter through the years. Uh, and of course, listening to Lugnuts games. And Demo Critique Day, awesome idea, bringing new voices into the fold, helping people develop their careers. The hashtag Demo Critique Day 
on Twitter. You can check that out to see uh, the kind of things that the feedback people are looking for. Uh, and if you're into broadcasters, you can follow a lot of the broadcasters that you see uh, on Twitter using that hashtag and follow their own careers. Because just like with the players, uh, you know, broadcasting is a long road and tough odds and, you know, have a lot of respect for the people such as yourself who do it. So thanks so much for coming on the show before the show. And uh, Jesse is holding up his shirt. So his closing words, please tell us what's on your shirt, Jesse. We need to encourage more voices. We need to do everything that we can to, because me being a broadcaster in the industry, I'm by nature a gatekeeper. So whatever we can do to open those gates, wide, wide open for styles that I don't understand, for people that I'm never ever going to meet, whoever we can. Um, it is a very white, straight male industry. And the more perspectives that we can possibly, possibly get, the better. So. Any ideas that anybody has to amplify voices and to encourage more people to do this, it's such a great craft. Thank you. Amen to all of that. Well said, Jesse. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. Big thanks to Jesse Goldberg-Trassler. You can find uh, on Twitter at JesseGS. He is really just one of the best dudes uh, in all of sports broadcasting and, uh, and just a great guy, great human being as well. Um, and a big thanks to him for joining us and a big thanks to you guys for letting me sit in uh, on the interview, or should I say just jump in uh, at a time when I deemed appropriate, when I got back from a, a different engagement for work stuff. No, I'm, I was really happy that you, you jumped on because you can speak to all of those things that that you and Jesse just spoke to yeah. much better than Ben and I can. Like we're going to ask the layman questions, which maybe the audience will have. Yeah. There's a place for that too. One. Like you need that person who's just like, I don't know this speak to it on a very basic level to me. Right. right, um, right. But also you guys can get into the weeds about that stuff. And we, we just ended that interview saying like all the stuff that I didn't know about the particular, the Dan Shulman thing about yeah, like second the focus the on inning. the second batter of the inning. The first one's to introduce the inning. The second one, you can go a little bit deeper on. The third one, again, just explain the action. There's so many levers that go beyond just, hey, let me explain to you what happened here on the field. Um, it's, it's fascinating to hear, and it's something that hopefully a lot of broadcasters are now getting critiques on uh, after the, you know, that big event on Monday. Absolutely. And uh, so with that, we'll dive into three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. As we noted earlier, we have a full Wander podcast, the episode uh, which should be in your feed right now. If you want to hear all of the Wander chat, uh, you can go over there to catch that one. But we're going to do some Wander uh, connected topics here for three strikes. So strike one, Sam, is there anybody currently in minor league baseball who you think by the time they debut – could have the same level of hype as Wander Franco. I know of one name. I'm betting you know the same, and we're probably thinking of it. Who do you think that could be? I mean, are you thinking somebody other than Adley Rutschman? Ah, I am. Okay, well, that's great. That's great because okay, that makes good. for good podcasting. It does make I'll, for I'll just podcast. say Adley Rutschman real quick because um, I think in recent years, you know, you look at somebody like Mickey Moniak or, or something like that, the number one overall pick doesn't hold as much heft in baseball as it does in, let's say, basketball or even in hockey, um, some of these other bigger sports, obviously the NFL, if it's like a quarterback or something like that, somebody makes their debut, it's a huge deal if they're the number one overall pick. There's a lot of machinations that go into the MLB draft, and we'll be touching on those, I'm sure, as we get closer to the draft in July this year. Um, but but Adley Rutschman, since he was taken by the Orioles, has kind of been circled as the next big, not only catching prospect, but like two-way prospect in baseball. He can really defend the position. He can hit really well. 
he felt like the culmination of Ori- the Orioles' rebuild. Um, you talk to anybody on Bowie, he's a leader of that team. He works really well with the pitching staff. He hits extremely well from both sides of the ball. Um, so I think when Adley Rutschman makes it back to Baltimore, I think we're going to hear lots of, hey, this is the return of Orioles magic. Um, some of those runs that we saw a couple of years ago with like when Chris Davis, when he was Chris Davis and Adam Jones was still there. And, um, you know, the, the part of the last decade when the Orioles really felt like they had something going and then it fell off cliff really quickly. When Adley Rutschman makes it to that level, we can start to see Camden Yards again on a national stage a lot. And I think that there's going to be a lot tied in to that as well. I think Orioles fans want it to happen. They want him to come up and, and be that guy. And I know that's putting a lot on him, but he has the goods. Like I said, on both sides, he's a good uh, hitter. He's a good defender. No matter what, he's going to provide value to the next contender in Baltimore. So when he does arrive, I think that'll be a big deal. Tyler, now, now that I, I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I have a guess on who your, yours would be, but who is it? Um, I don't know if I want to hear your guess first. No, I'm going to tell you who it is. This one's a ways off. Potentially, it's a ways off. But Jason Dominguez, the New York Yankees. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. actually, that was not my pick. Yeah. I thought you were going to uh, do another J-Rod. Oh, uh, interesting. Well, you know, I do. But I, do, I don't think J-Rod, because, like, he entered the year behind Kelnick. We've already right. seen Kelnick make the majors. There right, was right, right. tons of hype there, but it wasn't at Wander Franco level. Um, I'm um, currently yeah, Jason Dominguez is perfect. Currently in the same hotel as J-Rod. I could go trying to find him somewhere, bring him on for a repeat appearance on this uh, show before the show podcast. What are you doing here? Go. <laughs> go, man. <laughs> Knock on every door. Jason Dominguez currently an 18-year-old prospect in the New York Yankees organization who has yet to play a minor league game. He is 24th overall in all of baseball, uh, but he has engendered comparisons to, among others, Bo Jackson, Mickey Mantle, and Mike Trout from scouts who have seen him play. Now, that is insane stuff to put on an 18-year-old kid, especially because of the fact that they really started putting that on him at about 16 years old. He signed in, uh, in 2019, uh, and he was born in 2003, and that's when those comparisons started. That is insanity. But all of these things, all of these caveats leading me down this road, if Jason Dominguez lives up to his billing, climbs through the minor leagues relatively quickly, and let's say he's on the doorstep of the major leagues by the time he's 21, the way Julio Rodriguez is right now, not necessarily on the doorstep of the major leagues, but a guy who's climbing very quickly uh, and is a very highly touted prospect. The combination of a talent that special, a franchise like the Yankees, and New York and East Coast media will produce more hype for any prospect than maybe we have ever seen. Um, and I, you know, obviously I relish in my role. I was going to say I hate my role, but I kind of relish in my role of being the guy who says like, yes, you overblow everything from the East Coast. I don't care who your next mayor is in New York City. I'm sorry. Why does it have to lead newscasts across the country? That doesn't affect my life. But Jason Dominguez, mm. <laughs> well, I mean, it does, but not in the way that, you know, people are trying to project that it does. I'll save uh, that for our third podcast this week. <laughs> in which we diagnose the results of the New York City media race, the New York yeah. City mayor race. Um, Jason Dominguez, if he does uh, produce the way people, scouts, player development people, evaluators think he will, uh, he is going to be a hyped prospect, the likes of which we have never seen. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in the, And that's still like the air of mystique around him right now. I mean, we, the reason why he's not a top 10 overall prospect in baseball, despite getting those comparisons that you're talking about, is right. we have not seen him we in a minor league game. Play. We've never seen the, him play. The Yankees, he is playing at uh, extended spring training from you know all the reports we hear. Like every once in a while, he'll pop up with a video of here's what I did today. 
Um, so he is getting in games, but the Yankees have, have taken the slow road with him, which, you know, it's, it's not about what you're doing in June, 2021. Obviously they right. wanted him to get to a good place by 2023. And if he just doesn't have that pro experience, you want him finding his legs stateside. I totally understand that. Maybe if your short season ball, your, your Staten Island still existed or your Pulaski's, he'd be sent there. Um, but yeah, I, as of right now, we can still fill him with all these tools and say he can do all these things, and, and he very right. well could. I right. mean, it, it's a lot of smart people saying he is one of the best overall prospects we have in the game right now. We just need to see it. And maybe once we do, maybe things fall down, off a little bit. We're going to get results, and results can sometimes be disappointing. I think back to Kevin Maiton. Yeah. Remember Kevin Maiton? Yeah. He's still a prospect. Like, he still exists. Yeah. But at the time, he was the big he international the signing guy. by the Braves, then went to the Angels in, in a big coup because of – Braves international sanctions. And we're not talking about Kevin Maiton now as one of the best prospects in baseball because he fell off a cliff. Stateside ball was hard. Hitting is hard. Uh, Jason Dominguez has a lot of other tools to fall against, but if he is who we think he can be and he's knocking on the door of the Bronx, I think there's going to be a lot of people going to Scranton Wilkes-Barre games and tuning in on Mill TV and like checking in even on MLB Network to, for every at-bat when he's with the Rail Riders. If he ever even goes there, maybe he jumps straight from Somerset to, to the Bronx. But, yeah, Jason Dominguez is a fantastic pick on top and, of Rutschman. And what's interesting, too, is uh, there, according to MLB Pipeline, there were uh, people in the Yankees organization last year who thought had we had a normal world and a normal – uh, you know, 2020 minor league season, he could have made his debut at low A last year. Um, so there is, I would say, a decent potential that we see him at some point this year stateside. But uh, obviously, the, the pandemic and everything else has made that a little bit less of a certainty. And hey, man, he's 19, 18 years old. If he goes in his age 19 season to high A, he's still absurdly below the curve uh, in terms of the age bracket that's generally at that level. So it's going to be fascinating to watch him. Strike two this week, Sam. Matt Manning made his major league debut with the Detroit Tigers on June 17th. Uh, and also pitching today on the, the 23rd, uh, his debut came opposite Shohei Otani and he acquitted himself very well. Five innings, four hits, two runs, a couple of walks, three strikeouts looked pretty good. Your impressions from Matt Manning's major league debut with the Tigers. Yeah. So this is something we, we probably could have talked about last week cause we knew it was coming, but then we got to see his debut. I think the day the broadcast went up. So anyways, Matt Manning is now with the Tigers joining Casey Mize and Tarek school in that rotation injuries led to that. Uh, but what I've seen from Matt Manning is actually pretty, pretty positive, given what he was at AAA before that. He had the highest ERA in AAA ball. It was above eight, I believe, uh, which is not obviously what you want. And then he comes in that first game against Otani. Otani probably outpitched him. Not a huge surprise. Otani's been one of the best overall players in baseball this year. Uh, but the fact that Matt Manning came in and settled in really well, he only ended up giving up up two earned runs in five innings, gave up four hits, two walks, three strikeouts. So it wasn't like killer numbers here, but for somebody who was just plugged in after some significant struggles at AAA, uh, the Tigers, when they called him up, said, like, we think he's on a good trajectory. You're looking at the overall numbers, but the way he's been trending has been better. And that certainly came through in that June 17th start. Um, as we're sitting here right now on June 23rd and recording this during another one, uh, he's given up two earned runs and in four innings. So, again, seems to be settling in okay. Uh, one thing I, I was really impressed with uh, during that start is that it's it was pretty clear to me that he grew in confidence as it went along. Uh, one thing also is that he was giving a heavy – 
uh, steady diet of fastballs. Um, as of right now, 68.8% of his pitches have been the fastball. Uh, he's mixed in some sliders and curveballs, which based on what I've talked to the Tigers, it used to always be curveballs, but they seem to be like the breaking ball is something he's working on, trying to figure out if it is a curve or a slider. Uh, it can give multiple looks, which can be a good thing, but also you want con a consistent breaking ball. Uh, and he's also throwing a couple change-ups. But the fact that he is sticking with that uh, fastball right now, which traditionally can be around the mid-90s, he's averaging 93.9 miles per hour, so about what we expected from him. Uh, he can touch a little bit higher than that for sure. Um, but it, it's just another big piece of the puzzle locked in uh, for the Detroit Tigers. And if he can continue to grow off of this already pretty decent start, uh, then that could be huge news because we're seeing Casey Mize get better as the season goes on. He certainly took his lumps last year. Derek Skubal took his lumps last year. Um, both of those have been improved in 2021. So if Manning can kind of get on that same curve, then the future of the Detroit rotation that we all thought was going to be these three guys um, could be further locked into place by the end of the year. And hopefully we're going to see the Tigers taking a turn, uh, not only in terms of what makes up their farm system, we're already seeing that now with guys like Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, and Dylan Dingler taking over as the faces of the farm system rather than it being so pitching heavy in the past. But maybe if you know that three-fifths of your rotation is A, homegrown and going to be here for a while, maybe the Tigers can start making some moves in the offseason to really try to start to compete uh, in the AL Central in 2022. So promising signs so far for Matt Manning. Um, don't think it's it's killer stuff necessarily right now. I don't think he's showing like why he's a top 20 overall prospect. But again, if, if this is the base that he's starting from and he can grow like Mize and Scoogle have, uh, then the Tigers should be pretty happy with where he stands. All right, Sam, final strike this week. Uh, we are now over a month and a half into the minor league season. We saw some guys get off to really slow starts who have started to turn it around. Who is sticking out most to you among the players who have come on as June has gotten deeper and deeper? Yeah, the, the one I will shout out here real quick um, is J.J. Blade. Uh, Marlins first rounder from two years ago, obviously could have been, you know, started his career last year, didn't get to get in a, for a full season. So for all intents and purposes, this is his first full season and he's starting out at double a Pensacola, uh, which did not feel like aggressive by any means. He is 23 years old, so he is pretty age appropriate for where a top prospect should be, but he got off to a really rough start, and I don't know what you want to attribute that to. He, he did participate in all, the alt site last year, so it's not like he was completely off in 2020. But it could just be facing double-A pitching is, is extremely difficult. Um, and he batted 141 in May and had a 235 slugging percentage. This is somebody who, when he was at Vanderbilt, led Division One in home runs. So we know the power is there, uh, but he hit only one in 85 at-bats in the season's first month. Now in June – everything's working out on a much better level. He's got a 284 average in June, 522 slugging percentage, 856 OPS, four homers, so four times as many as he hit in May. Uh, and that's that's coming in 18 fewer at-bats. So uh, one thing he's doing less of as well is striking out. He struck out 30 times in May, only 11 strikeouts so far in June. And he's also walking less. So what that tells me is he's probably getting more aggressive with pitches to hit earlier in the count. Um, it, it's great to, to be patient and, you know, wait for your pitches and, and not try to attack. But if it's going to mean you're getting into a lot of one, two, 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 three, two counts and leading yourself to a lot of opportunities to strike out, 
sometimes that's not best for a player. So if, if maybe what JJ Blade is doing right now is jumping on balls earlier in the count, realizing, Hey, this might be one. Oh, but it's something I can drive right now. Let me go and get after it. Um, so that promising signs all around for JJ Blade. Uh, we're going to need to see this continue uh, as the season wears long. And again, this is his first full season. So there might be a time where he's going to tire in August and September, but if he can carry this June into July and August, um, then J.J. Blade will be every bit the player we thought he could be. Um, Tyler, is there anybody, as, as you're working the nights and following a lot of this, is there anybody who's starting to pop up more and more here in June? Yeah, one guy who I feel like we're hearing a lot about uh, more and more is the top prep player from last year's draft, who is Zach Veen of the Colorado Rockies, the outfielder prospect who's played both corner spots. He's DH'd a little bit this year. Zach Veen, his overall numbers in June um, have not necessarily been mind-blowingly better than they were in May, but he started really slowly. Uh, hit 238, 354, 350 in May in 23 games. Through 17 games in June, 246, 398, 385. He's also starting to come along uh, driving a ball a little bit more. He's got his first home run. The thing that's really stood out to me about Zach Veen are the things that when you saw his profile – saw his size, saw the way he hit in high school. You think, oh, that's a future big-time power bat in the major leagues in the making. Zach Veen, his uh, plate discipline has been tremendous. Uh, during the month of May, he struck out 30 times and walked 13 times. Uh, so far in June, he has struck out 20 times. He's walked 16 times. And this is a player who was in high school uh, this time, you know, 14 months ago. He is 19 years old. That plate discipline at low A with the Fresno Grizzlies is, is pretty impressive. Also, the way he's stealing bases is ridiculous. Zach Veen started, and I think at the beginning of the season, we all assumed, well, you know, this guy, maybe he's just kind of catching people off guard, uh, you know, with the way he runs. His run tool is a 50. That's major league average, according to MLB Pipeline. But during the month of May, he stole 13 bases and was caught six times. He has stolen eight bases in the month of June and has not been caught once. So he's at 21 stolen bases. That is something that we don't really see uh, anywhere in baseball anymore. 20 stolen base seasons for prospects uh, is kind of becoming a rarity. Zach Veen, not a guy who you would expect really to be a runner uh, in the way that he has been as a professional. Uh, very impressive stuff from him in some intangible things uh, as well that have not been necessarily maybe what you would have expected with a guy who comes in with a, a really good power tool, a really good hit tool. Uh, he seems like he's getting a lot of stuff figured out in areas of the game that maybe you wouldn't have expected with him in his debut season. Um, and he's with the Fresno Grizzlies in low A and uh, has been pretty fun to watch so far. Yeah, one thing we should mention, too, about why he has been able to be so aggressive on the, yeah. the base paths is because of the new low A right. uh, rules, which right. mean that low A pitchers are only allowed two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. Right um, Now, all credit to him for taking advantage of that in the way that he has. I mean, just because you, the rule exists for everybody, he's still doing it at a level that many people at low A are not. Um, but that, I think that's allowed him to steal more bases than he typically would have. So if you're expecting him to be – a 20 stolen base guy through June at every level going forward. That might not be the case, but Hey, you know, you can only play where you are. And if the rules indicate that uh, guys are only going to throw over twice or else be incurred a penalty and you want to take advantage of it. The fact that he's doing that is, is certainly a, a plus in his, you know, profile. that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode. We're back to wrap up the show next. up 
this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was around way back when, the others are pure hooey. In last week's segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The East Moline Easy Marks. B. The Shreveport Suckers. C. The Riverside Rubes. As all of you savvy and slicksters know, the correct answer is C. The Riverside Rubes, who were a shining example of gullible go-getters in the Sunset League of 1948 and 1950. The franchise played other years as the Dons, but they doffed the Dons unis for the Rubes rags to give some yokel flavor to their Southern California bird for two non-consecutive seasons. <laughs> the Rubes were befuddled when their 74 and 68 record left them seven games beneath the soaring Mexican Calia Gilas in 1948. About half the circuit played the Rubes for Fools again in 50 when Riverside finished fourth. The Rubes had three players who already knew their way around the big city, I mean the big leagues. George Castor was perhaps fishing for another shot at the majors when he landed with the Rubes in 48 at age 40, taking a walk on the Riverside team as part-time manager and pitcher. Hey, what's going on on this side? When Bud Swartz and Ken Richardson came to the Sunset League in 1950, they, too, were on the Sunset side of their careers. But while traveling and industrial league teams known as the Riverside Rubes ah shucks their way around diamonds both before and after the slack-jawed nine played in the minors, the nightfall for the Sunset League meant the end of the naive franchise as we knew it. Get off the day, Rube! The San Bernardino Sun reported in January 1951 that the Rubes were getting rubbed out with upwards of $10,000 in debt, and other teams in the league were worse off still. With the conflict on the Korean Peninsula raging, the paper relayed, Riverside executive Joe Wilmer has this to say on the Rubes' El Foldo. With the war factories buzzing and the army calling, men aren't going to play for $150 to $300 a month, and the clubs certainly can't afford to pay more than that. And so, that was that, and believe it or not, that's the rumpus on the rubes. Now, turn up your noses and suck as we sniff out the aromatic answer to next week's question. Which of these floral-themed teams were the resplendent bows of the miners' salad days? A. The Yakima Cherry Blossoms B. The Lancaster Red Roses C. The Fort Brady Flying Daffodils Want to know the answer? Head to the Garden of Knowledge and get digging. Or tune in to next week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is impersonating Salvador Dali, and it's getting absurd. Saying goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is your place to catch all of the top talent in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV this week? Yeah, so I know I mentioned the Bowie Bay Sox a lot. Uh, they are hosting New Hampshire Fisher Cats, who already have 
uh, some stud prospects on their team, Austin Martin, somebody who we could have mentioned last time. I think he's starting to get hot uh, in that last segment. Uh, Jordan Groshan's on that team as well. But one name I want to shout out real fast, who's the latest addition to MLB Pipeline's Top 100, is Gabriel Moreno, uh, who I've thought of in the past as like a pretty good hitting catcher, a decent uh, defensive catcher as well. But right now, WRC Plus, which puts everybody on a scale where 100 is average and uh, and the minor league levels, it, it puts in league factors. So if you're performing really well at a hitter-friendly league, uh, then you're going to get dinged a little bit. Or if you're performing really well at a pitcher-friendly league, you're going to get elevated a little bit. He has the second highest WRC plus in all of minor league baseball uh, at 204. Again, average is 100. Um, so he's hitting 385. He's got a 452 on base percentage, 684 slugging. This is a reason why we pushed him into the top 100 because I think you mix that with the fact that he plays catcher, the fact that he has some pretty good defensive tools. Uh, and it seems like every night that something's happening. And I know for a long time, the New Hampshire Fisher Cats themselves were trying to uh, campaign for him to make the top 100. That's not why he made it there. Um, but the fact that he has been this productive has been super special. And he might be the best offensive player on that team now at a time when we thought Groshans and, and Martin were ahead of him. So that's pretty exciting. But not only in that series are you getting those three, you're getting your Adley Rushmans, your Taron Vavras. Um, so it's, no matter when you tune into the, that series, I think you're going to see something special on the field. So keep your eye on New Hampshire playing at Bowie this week. Uh, any of those six games, you, you're not going to go wrong. Tyler, anything you got your eye on? I was going to go with Zach Veen and the Fresno Grizzlies, but uh, they will be in Visalia and therefore not on Mill TV. So I'm pivoting to uh, Bryce Turing and the Biloxi Shuckers. Bryce Turing has been really, really good as of late. Uh, guy who's OPSing 800 in the month of June and has really started to come on strong. He and the Biloxi Shuckers will be uh, at home taking on the Montgomery Biscuits. And you can catch all of those games on Mill TV. There's some fun talent on that Biloxi roster. Biloxi roster? Biloxi roster. And, uh, you know, you learn how to say all the Louisville, Biloxi. <laughs> what are you all doing down there? Montgomery. <laughs> Uh, it's like uh, what Jesse said. Like, exactly. I was just going to say, like Jesse was saying, yeah. I got I to gotta drop all of my – you can be watching Mill TV uh, while you're eating some – I'm going to stop. Um, but the Biloxi Shuckers and the Montgomery Biscuits coming up this week on Mill TV. That'll do it for this week's episode. Go catch the Wander episode as well. We're talking all things Wander Franco. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Oh, 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 oh,